Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I've lost weight. You know, wealth is up. Business is going well. More quality time working from home with my family than ever before. So I feel like for us, it's the best of times, but I don't have to look that far from friends or family be like, oh, there's some real struggle out there. And we and we try to do what we can and, and give back in the ways that we feel that's appropriate. But it's a really weird time where you see like a huge cross-section of people struggling just to make ends meet. And then you're like, oh, we we created more millionaires, billionaires, and more, you know, paper money in the stock market in the last two years than ever in the history of America. That feels kind of weird. It's a really precarious time. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazda. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, and business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Guys, welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. And boy, do we have a special guest. My main man, Scott Groves, is in the house. What's up, buddy? Oh, my gosh. When you were like, can we play Temple of the Dog? I'm like, fuck yeah, we can play Temple of the Dog. (laughs) (laughs) Best album of the 90s that never had a follow-up album because it was just like a one-day super group. Yeah, so who was it? It was like... Chris Cornell. And then it was Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. Album almost didn't get released because Eddie Vedder became a super big deal right after they recorded that. And there was all kinds of arguments over royalties. And then it had a couple of the guys from Mother Love Bone um, because the lead, which kind of became Pearl Jam, because the lead singer of that band had died. So they made that whole album just as a tribute album. And it's like the best representation of grunge from the 90s in a single album and never to be followed up on. Caught lightning in a bottle, just like this Uh. podcast. Exactly. Exactly. This is like this is today's version of Temple of the Dog. There we go. <laughs> so, uh, guys, for those of you guys that are new to the show, we're about two things. People are living their passions. The Greatness Machine is about people are living their passions, and those are creating greatness in the world. My main man Scott and Temple of the Dog are another short of passion or greatness. So, first of all, I just want to do you mind if I give a little bit of our origin story? Go for it. 
I met Scott through my book launch last year. And so we have some mutual friends, Amber Vilhauer and Isaac Stegman uh, introduced me to Scott to actually promote my book to his coaching group and to his, uh, to his network. And instantly we became fast friends. Like, like, and then it turns out that another one of my friends who they introduced me to John Roman, he's in front row dads. And so we ended up hanging out at the front row dads retreat where I presented the book. And, and so anyway, Scott and I have, have, we've been running around uh, in circles and then, and then we're on Facebook a lot and I see him posting stuff and, and we're kind of like challenging each other because we're like a Venn diagram of political beliefs. <laughs> like there's like definitely a center where we're like, fuck yeah, you're right. And then the other stuff we're like, I don't know if I agree with you, but I respect what you have to say. Yeah. So, which is rare in America these days. If anyone wants to know how to cure the ills of America, just look to Scott Groves and Darius Mishazde. Like, there you go. The way we interact is definitely uh, the way that everyone else needs to take notice. But uh, yeah, so then it turns out we both in the mortgage come from the mortgage space. You're with Movement Mortgage. I, I ran the, the money source. So we got all this overlap. But the but the thing that I like most about Scott that he doesn't know, most of our relationship we've never oh well, we met in person once at, at the Front Row Dads retreat. But but we we haven't spent that much time together in person, mostly virtually online. Is um is he posts like we're the same age, right? You're 43. Yeah, we're the exact same age. So half the shit he posts is like literally like an arrow to my soul from a pop culture perspective. And I swear to God, we were doing the same shit. We both grew up in like right outside LA. He grew up in, yep. in what, Valencia. Is that right? Yeah. Palmdale, Lancaster area, Glendale all over the place. We both wrestled. Oh yeah, uh, I, uh, so that's right. I forgot that you wrestled. So so there's all this over, overlap, but he's always posting this shit where he's like, Oh, I love the Rocky movies. And I'm like, I fucking love the Rocky movies. <laughs> He's like karate kid. It's like every single thing. I'm like, dude, I swear to God, we were doing the same thing at the same time, like a hundred miles apart or 50 miles apart from each other growing up. So here we are, man. Yeah, dude. Happy to be here. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because it, it actually shows the beauty of what Facebook is meant to be. It's like you and I couldn't have had m- more opposite side origin stories, you know, Iran to Southern California. And then somehow through this shared experience on social media, we realize we're like kindred souls and we can have great political conversations and we have business conversations and we can become friends. And we've got a decade and a half of shit in common from when we were both growing up in Southern California. Like that's the beauty that I think all of us are forgetting about on social media because everybody focuses on the negativity. But like you and I wouldn't be close friends if it wasn't for Facebook. So I hate all the negativity because you and I are buddies. That, that's, that's worth the trade-off. Yeah, no, I'll take it. I, th- I think what ends up happening is, have I ever told you about the story of, of when I got on Facebook, like this one goal that I had? No. I haven't told you the story. So I'm going to talk about Scott and his background in a second, but I want to tell the story because it's a funny story. So I'm always an early adopter. I'm early to everything. I moved to Austin in 17. I have started looking to move here in 13. I was looking at houses at 11. I moved to San Francisco in 2001. I mean, I was on Friendster when that was a thing. I was like one of the first people I knew. On social media, I was always first, right? And so I was on Friendster, then MySpace. And then I was hearing about all these college kids. And my sister was in college at the time who were on this app platform called Facebook. This is like 05. I hear about this. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And so by 06, I'm like, I'm going to go try to sign up for that. But you couldn't even sign up unless you had a .edu in right. your like email. So I go to, I went to UC Santa Barbara. So I go to, to my alumni association page 
I sign up and they give you an email address as an alumni. Nice. And so I used my alumni association at UCSB because back then a normal person could not get on Facebook unless you had a .edu. Right. And I get my first, I get my login to Facebook through Santa Bar- UC Santa Barbara Alumni Association. I get on there and nobody I know is on it except college kids. And I was like, well, fuck, this isn't doing shit for me, you know? Because like, yeah, I know some people in college, but I'm like. 28 years old at the time like i don't know that many people creeper creeper i'm such a creep um (laughs) since i'm early a lot of people start joining when i joined and so and i had a newborn son in 2009 this is about two years later so at that point it was mainstream everyone's joining like in droves right this is when facebook got really was hot 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 and so i was like oh man all these people are showing up every day i'm like you're gonna laugh when i say what i'm about to say I said, I'm going to go friend every single person I've ever known in my whole life. I went to like three different elementary schools. I went back <laughs> to like kindergarten, preschool, and I have like an elephant memory. I can remember everyone's names. So, dude, these are people I hadn't seen since I was in first grade. I'm like friending them. And I said, I want to see how many people I can actually connect with who I, who I know. And I, I ran out at, at 1,500. I had known these are 1,500 people I actually knew at one point in my life. But then I, I realized something. I didn't know any of them. I knew very few of them, right? right. I had known them at, when we were like seven and we were like beating the shit out of each other on the playground. But like I quit being their friend in third grade and then we went out and like did our own things. And now here I am at 30 years old, friending everybody. Dude, I had the most fucked up face. This is before the algorithm was, was is now where like smart or, or, and censoring. Um <laughs> <laughs> And so I'm, dude, before I knew it, I was like, oh my God, I didn't know those were your political beliefs. I have to hear what you ate for fucking dinner last night, dude. And then I went to, and then I was like, okay, I got to untangle this mess. I'm going to go and unfriend all these people. Dude, Facebook makes it nearly fucking impossible. It's like five clicks for an unfriend. It's miserable. It takes hours. So I did like a hundred and I was like, it took me like four hours and I was like, oh, I can't do this. I was just, <laughs> I, I quit. I tapped out. You're like, can I hire an executive assistant or a virtual assistant in the Philippines to unfriend all my fake friends? <laughs> so then Instagram came out and that was new. And I was one of the first people I knew on Instagram, like in 2010 and I, 11. And I was like, oh, I'm doing this one right. If you're friends with me on Facebook and you're not friends with me on Instagram, I'm not your, you know, I'm not your friend. <laughs> Dude, anyway, so I told you guys how we met Scott, but do you mind if I give your formal bio? I just yeah, go for it. Go I just hijacked it. this talk about you and about me. <laughs> totally fine. <laughs> guys, so Scott, with almost 20 years under his belt, Scott Gross has received multiple awards for his exceptional service, particularly in loan production. He is a master at, at Movement Mortgage, building an amazing business over there. Came from New American Funding, Washington Mutual, just has done tons of stuff in the mortgage space. And we're going to be talking about his book, Lead Generate uh, 61 Days to Double Your Pay, as well as, as his amazing podcast that I go on and say crazy shit on called On the Edge Podcast. So anything else and then some, because you're doing a ton of fun, cool stuff. So, man, let's start from days, day one, man. I know you were in the military and then you got in a mortgage, but like, take us all the way back to like, 78. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 78. Actually, I turned 43 here in two months. So it was 79, born to two parents that are great people, but I was born like literally out of high school. They graduated, I think, in uh, June of 77 or 78. And then I was born March of 79. So um, yeah, when you ask, I'm actually only 42. So you're, you're behind you. But uh, yeah, crazy. Just grew up in Southern California, like typical kind of middle-class family, you know, parents worked really hard. I screwed around a lot in high school. 
Uh, thankfully, I didn't discover drugs or I would have been a real mess. Oh. But between wrestling, surfing, girls, more girls, girls, I almost didn't graduate high school. I had straight A's, but I had 57 absences out of like 200 and something, 220 school days. So my mom had to go petition the school to let me graduate because they had this thing like even if you had straight A's, if you had more than 50 absences, you weren't supposed to graduate. So um, anyway... Not exactly the best resume to get into college. So uh, like the end of 11th grade, beginning of 12th grade, some army recruiters like trolling around. It turned out if I took the ASVAB test, I would go sit next to Danielle Kumas, who I had a crush on. And we were like next to each other alphabetically, Groves and Kumas in like the class where we would take the ASVAB test, which is the military entrance test. I did really well. The recruiter was hounding me. So Danielle, if you're watching, you're the reason I ended up in the military for three years. Did 97 to 2000 because they had this cool thing where if you sign up your senior year, you only had to do three years instead of four years. And the crazy story is like, I was, I was an infantry guy. I was, I was pretty good in the military. I was supposed to go, this is the weirdest chain of events, Darius. I was supposed to go to special forces selection committee, which I think I would have made it through because the two guys I was training with, they both made it. And I had passed all the prelims and done the swim in my, you know, backpack. And I had done the 12 mile road march and all this stuff. And right before we're supposed to ship out for the 30 days, they're like, oh, hey, Groves, you have less than six months on your contract. You have to re-enlist if we're going to spend the money to send you to special forces selection. And I was like, well, if I fall and like twist my ankle, like I don't want to get stuck here at Fort Riley, Kansas in the middle of shithole Kansas for another four years. So that kind of made me angry. And then I got in a fight with the recruiting sergeant. So then I got out of the military. And what's nuts is I, I ETS end term service on September 11th, 2000. And special forces training is about a year. So had I made it, and I, I believe I would have made it through the 30 day selection process, I literally would have been getting out of Green Beret school around September 11th, 2001. And the trajectory of my life would have been much, much different. But as it is, I, I got pissed off at the, the retention sergeant at Fort Riley, Kansas. I got out of the military, fell into banking like everybody else that falls into mortgage, had no intention of doing mortgages. I was working as a teller, fell into mortgage, rode that wave up to 2008, just like you and everybody else. And then in 2009, I think I made $18,000 and slept on my friend's couch to try to not go bankrupt. Had like a series of fortunate events where I got kind of in-house relationship in a real estate office, started to rebound, like doubled my business every year from you know 2010 to 2015, did 100 million in production. That turned into a bunch of phone calls from people saying, hey, what are you doing? That turned into a book. That turned into a coaching program. So now I run a coaching program for loan officers. I still do loans with our amazing team. Actually, my team does the loans mostly. But it's crazy, man. The older I get, the more I realize like variety is my highest value. And yeah. so I'm like a $100 million producer, could be a $200 million producer maybe, but I love the coaching business. I love writing books. I love doing podcasts. And the podcast is super not safe for work. If any of my realtors listen to it, they'll probably never want to work with me again. We talk a lot about, about guns and libertarian topics and the intersection of evil politics and 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 uh, economics and whatnot. So I'm just like, I'm like a basket case, dude. I have I have a successful ADHD, BDA, DA, whatever the newest diagnosis G is. GZ, I don't know what, whatever it's called now, I'm that guy, but I've just found a way to funnel it and surround myself with good people and have some pretty successful careers. So I'm happy, man. I'm happy. 
Yeah, so, so I was thinking about that. I'm like, I think we do have that in common. Uh, you know, uh, pretentious fuckers call themselves polymaths. When uh, polymath is that what it is? When you're when you have like, you know what I'm talking about? Have you heard of this term? Yeah, no yeah, I think you and I are both a polymath. Let me poly, not polygamy. Not uh, polygamous, but yeah, polymeth is that what it is? Polymath. Oh damn it! I don't know. Yeah, P, yeah, polymath. Oh, okay. If you're a pretentious fuck, you can call yourself this. It's a person of wide-ranging knowledge or learning. Ooh, there we go. So there like go. people that have a ton of interest, they'll call themselves, oh, I'm a polymath. I think I am one just because I do really have a lot of interests in a lot of different areas. And in business, it kind of fucks you a little bit because you're like, why aren't you focused for Shaw's Day? And I'm like, because there's all this other shit that's interesting. Look, man, like it's like... And some people are so good at it. They're like, just grind. They're like, all I do is this one thing and I'm better than it than anyone else in the world. And I'm like, dude, more power to you, brother. But I get bored. You know, I'm like, yeah, but I want to go try something else too and go get good at that and then go go try something else, you know? Dude, that totally describes me. Like even my hobbies, you know, I've been really good at boxing at like an amateur level for a certain time in my life. And then I was like, I was like five and zero in like the old man amateur boxing circuit. And I'm like, Oh, that's cool. I should go try jujitsu. And then it's like for a while, every vacation was scuba diving. I became a dive master, like whatever. And then I was like, all right, cool. I've seen a whole lot of fish. I haven't scuba dove in like 12 years, which is kind of weird. Cause my personal email is scuba groves at gmail.com. So it's like, well, that was a passion when I signed up, but having scuba dove in like, in like 10 years, 12 years. So, <laughs> that's awesome. um, yeah, yeah. One day I'm going to win the lotto and I can just sit around writing random books on different topics that I'm not an expert at, but hopefully have like enough entertainment value that people will read them. Yeah, yeah but at least you could be an authority on them because you'll be an author. So, yes, yes, so like, exactly. I don't really know shit about this, but I am an authority, which is good enough for me. So let me ask you a question. So, dude, so you it's funny. You, so you joined the military right before 9-11. And so... It's funny back then, like that was like the probably the longest like time where there was like peacetime in America. So I had a bunch of buddies yeah. that were in the military in the 90s. It was like, it was awesome. I just go and I get to travel all over the world and then I get out and they pay for my college. And that was like the norm, right? Like right. most the and, and then 9-11 happened. So I didn't realize that they did a three-year program then. They allowed you it was probably because there was like nobody really like thought too much about the military back then. It was just like no, not at all. And, and you know what's crazy is like just the convergence of events, like because I only signed up for three years instead of four, and it was like this, you know, high school transition program, they didn't allow me to go out of country. So there was no chance I was going to get stationed in Germany because, frankly, the army had done the cost benefit analysis. They didn't want to pay for the plane ticket to Germany. So I get stuck in shitty Fort Riley, Kansas. Because I only signed up for three years, they wouldn't send me to airborne school. So all these things that would have been like cool military experiences would have required me to stay in for four years which would have meant that like I would have been in for 9-11 and my life would have taken a massively different trajectory. Maybe better, maybe worse. Maybe I'm dead. Maybe I'm deformed. I don't know. And it's weird because I've got some weird like um, it's not survivor guilt because luckily no one I was super close with died in the war. But there is this weird thing where it's like, hey, I was a really good soldier. I took up resources to get trained. I was like in a leadership position by the time I left the military. And like I almost feel guilty that I wasn't in longer to like serve in a combat arena because I was an infantry guy. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I would have kept some guys alive. Maybe like I would have like made my mark on society in a different, better way than just putting people in debt for 30 years. So it's this weird thing that screws with my mind when people like when people even say like happy Veterans Day or thank you for your service. I'm like, yeah, 
I, I was in the military and I signed up voluntarily, but I wasn't that guy. Like I didn't go do four tours in Iraq and Afghanistan like so many of my friends have. And some of them are a little in the brain because like they saw some shit that you can't unsee. And I'm like, yeah, I signed up. But basically what I did was I swept a motor pool in Fort Riley, Kansas and got drunk every night for three years. So, yeah, you know, but, it's, but it's weird. Yeah, yeah no, I, I hear you on that. But it's like, but you also signed up with the risk of not not being what you did right yeah, so true. so i mean like i don't think anyone joins the military with the hopes of like never seeing combat i i do think a lot of people are like yeah i'm i'm, I'm willing uh, hopefully there is no combat but i'm willing to go and die for my country because you're putting yourself in that position when you sign sign that contract right but it's like hey look like it didn't happen so but you did your part like like it's not your job to go create wars like leave that right. to the fat cat politicians hey <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million-dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through, but then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklyn and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stopped me from fully enjoying the little things in life, from canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. 
Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear, uses directed. Funny story, being from Southern California, do you want to know how boring Fort Riley, Kansas was, like middle of America? I mean, I can only imagine. <laughs> it was so boring that, as you said, you know, like basically end of the Gulf War until September 11th, very peaceful time. There wasn't a whole lot going on. But we had a small uh, a small mission contingent of engineers. I was an engineer guy. Engineers that had gone to Bosnia and, you know, for Kosovo and whatnot to clear landmines. They were part of that, like, Princess Diana, clear the landmines for the kids UN mission. Mm-hmm. I was so fucking bored in Kansas that I volunteered to go clear landmines in Bosnia. And they were like, what? And I'm like, yeah, can you just reclassify me as an engineer? Like I've taken a bunch of the, you know, co-engineer infantry training. Like I'll just, I'll go to Bosnia to clear landmines. That sounds amazing. Sounds better than getting drunk in Fort Riley, Kansas, like Junction City every night. And they, they wouldn't let me go. So that, that's how boring the army was in 1998 in Kansas. I volunteered to go clear man, landmine. That is kind of ins- insanity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm bored. Can we go do a, like an old uh, clearing of the Viet Cong while we're at it? <laughs> yeah, you know? it didn't really work out. <laughs> so you got back and yeah, 2000, it, I guess you get back and you get a job in banking and, and then you get turned on to the wonderful world of mortgage. So tell us about that. How did you get in the mortgage industry? Yeah. So funny story, man. A good friend of mine, Jessica Malin, who were still super close. We were, we were tight in junior high and high school. She was like an assistant bank manager at Washington Mutual. And she was like, hey, man, we have this program where if you're a full-time college student, you only have to work 20 hours a week at Washington Mutual and you get full benefits, medical and whatnot. And I grew up my mom being part of a union, working for thrifties and Rite Aids, where she was like habitually underpaid, but she's like, I have great benefits for, for the family. I have great benefits. So in my mind, getting out of the army, like no more free healthcare, I was like, oh God, I, I got to have benefits. I got to have benefits. So I go start as a teller at Washington Mutual. And 30 days later, Jessica pulls me aside and she's like, hey man, you're like out of balance all the time on your cash drawer. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm, I'm clearly not stealing the money. I'm out of balance like seven cents, eight cents, a dollar fifty. Like I'm not stealing the money. I'm just, I'm just going so fast. I make mistakes. And she's like, yeah, this is a bank. There is no such thing as like making mistakes. She's like, so we're going to have to either like let you go or you're really good talking to clients. Do you want to go into like the personal banking side and learn how to do like loans and uh, new accounts and home equity line of credits? And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, are you offering me like to either get promoted or get fired? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll take the promotion. So I took the promotion like August or November of 2000. And then started doing second mortgages and then first mortgages and rode that wave up. And you know what's crazy working in the bank? Because you came from kind of like the broker and the wholesale side. Back in the day, if you were doing loans in the branch level, I thought making like $100,000 was all the money in the world. I was like, because I was used to the army making like $18,000 a year. So making $100,000 in 2005, I had no idea there was brokers making like millions of bucks who were then selling the garbage loans to Washington Mutual that ended up taking us down. And I'm like, wait a minute, I didn't get the money and my company went away? Like, so I, I just yeah. screwed up. I screwed up everything from 2000 to 2009-ish and then luckily found a way to rebound. Luckily, I was young, no kids, not a ton of responsibility. I could sleep on the couch. But yeah, that was Washington Mutual. There's actually a great book called The Forgotten Bank, all about the rise and fall of Washington Mutual, the uh-huh. largest bank failure in the history of the world. Phenomenal, phenomenal story that like breaks it all down. 
And then it was just, you know, rebound and recover and lick your wounds and try to try to rebuild. It, well, it's funny. It's like, um, I don't know if I did broker. Well, through Long Beach, I did. Long Beach Mortgage, which was Archie. their which was the trash can for, <laughs> for yeah. Wamu, Wamu. But no, listen, Wamu, like they made their bed, man. Like, like, like it takes two to tango. You can't broker sure. a loan. You can't broker a loan to somebody that doesn't want it. You know? Sure. So yeah, it's funny, man. I, I dealt with a, uh, it was interesting as I was dealing with, after the fact, I dealt with uh, the side effects of brokering loans to them because they came back and sued all the brokers afterwards. Not yeah. the bank necessarily, but the borrowers did. They were suing the brokers right. and the lenders. So yeah, you guys. Um, so when you left Wamu, what year did you leave them? Because they became- so I, I left them right before they collapsed, and I went out, tried to do my own thing, bounced around a couple companies, and then dumb luck. Like I was massively in debt, Darius. Like I think I think when everything was said and done, the cars, the credit cards, the upside down houses. I think I was almost a million dollars in debt. So. I I racked up like a million dollars in negative equity because I was buying houses. I had a condo in Vegas that we bought for 360 and a year later, it was worth $80,000. So I I basically racked up all this bad debt in my 20s. Should have declared bankruptcy and just had a fresh start, but I was like too proud about it. So that I spent effectively all my 30s paying off this debt. I got a really great opportunity, kind of a, a fringe friend to tell you the truth, was getting married in Belize. And I think like the market was melting down so much. They had a lot of cancellations. So I got an invite and I'm like, well, screw it. This whole thing's gone to hell. I'm going to take my last couple thousand dollars, go on this vacation to Belize, go to this wedding. It'll be my last like swan song. Maybe I'll come back and declare bankruptcy and then go get a like middle management job at Ikea where my dad's friend was working. And um, when I was down there, the groom, I knew the bride. When I was down there, the groom was like an assistant manager at a uh, prudential real estate office. And then the the manager uh, was this guy named Kirk Giroux, who I will always forever be blessed and thankful for. On the flight back, he's like, hey, man, you seem like a pretty smart dude. Like this mortgage thing is going to hell in a handbasket. But if you come be the in-house lender at our real estate office, you know, somebody will always have to buy a house. You know, somebody even even in the depths of the Great Depression, somebody was investing in real estate. Somebody had enough money and income to buy a house. Somebody's getting divorced, married, whatever. So he gave me a shot. Um, and he really had to fight for me to come get this position because I was coming from the bank where I had never sourced my own purchase loan. And I sat in that real estate office for three years. And I'm not kidding. Monday through Sunday, first person in the office, last person to leave. I knew everybody's gossip. I knew who was a night owl and was doing this part time. I knew who was like treating like a business. I knew who was crazy and was never going to close a deal. And I just talked to every single realtor there every single day for three years and then had me introduce me or had them introduce me to every other realtor on the spot. And that actually, that's what ended up leading to the book on lead generation. Cause I was like, dude, I have nothing and I have nothing to lose and I'm going to go bankrupt. If I don't spend a couple hours a day, every single day, lead generating and building relationships, I'm not going to make it. And so then, you know, then I made like 50,000, then a hundred thousand, then 200, then 400, then 800. And like, Income just doubled every year from 2009-ish to 2015-ish. And then I kind of found a nice equilibrium where I'm happy with the production. It's kind of stuck around 100 million for like five years. But that five years was just, it saved my life. Like lead generation really saved my life. I think myself and many other people in the mortgage industry, you know, at one point were thinking about legitimately checking out in the most egregious way. And, uh, you know, it was it was brutal to like lose everything. I don't, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember, but it's like, 
you'd be out with friends or at a cocktail party, which I couldn't afford. So I'd be leeching onto somebody else's cocktail party. And uh, they'd be like, oh, what do you do? And I'd be like, oh, I do mortgages. And you would get this, ooh, that. Oh, uh, do I remember that? Jesus, you're fucking kidding me. Yeah, <laughs> dude, it's like I, you I, crashed I, the world economy and they're like, ooh, you're one of those guys, huh? Yeah, dude. Oh. First of all, I, I stopped saying I, was, I did mortgages. I told them I did real estate finance. <laughs> oh, <laughs> good job. Did, did I do, did I do? Do I remember? Oh, dude, brother, I'm going to be doing a podcast. I made a list of podcast solos I'm going to do. And one is about the time that I got fucking Channel 7 News, eye on your side, reporter in my office over some direct mail I sent that was like, I made a mistake on it. It was like an honest mistake. So not only did I have like the embarrassment of being in a mortgage, when people Googled my fucking name, they would see the Channel 7 News like breaking into my office with a fucking camera crew. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, the that, worst. Yeah, it was not cool because it was really an honest mistake. It was like literally like the worst possible thing that could happen when you screw up. Yeah. You know? And it was like an honest, like I wasn't trying to do anything wrong mistake that just like came out wrong, right? Like, and so I had that on top of it where people were like, "Ooh, you're a, you do mortgage?" People would look at you like you're fucking Satan. When yeah. You, totally. And I was like, "Hey, assholes! You fucking no one made you take fucking stated income loans. You chose to take those loans." Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, and you know what's crazy about the whole thing, which really is like kind of the post mortem on this whole thing, is like all these financial institutions and Wall Street and Bear Stearns. They had all of these algorithms and all this crazy, you know, uh, extrapolation of debt based off of the fact that somewhere around 1% of Americans might default at any time on their mortgages. And yeah, we got to a point where like 8 or 9% of people defaulted on their mortgages, which wrecked the national and almost the world economy. But that means 91% of people were still paying their mortgage on time. Like I know a lot of people that took those liar loans or the stated income loans or whatever, and they had to use them because husband was in college and they were piecing together all these income sources that they can improve. And they built great wealth through the 2000s through real estate because they were able to buy houses on these stated income loans or whatnot. And I don't think we're going to ever go back to that. But I think it's important to remind people that like, yeah, everything was a shit show. There was blood in the streets when it comes to real estate and 90% of people were still paying their mortgage on time. It's yeah. just, you know, the financial institutions didn't have any, you know, room for error, which, yeah, I get it. Like my, my financial portfolio can't be like 10 X gone the wrong way without me taking a big hit too. But 90% of people still paid on time and had great wealth accumulation through real estate. And God forbid anybody who accidentally let it all go, they screwed up, man, because now 10 years later, property values are worth even more. So there's a silver lining. Yeah, there's a moral hazard around this because when people, you know, first of all, I was on the receiving end because I was a broker and a lender during that time. I spent 2007 to 2011 getting fucking sued by everybody. So my story is like I'm on the receiving end of borrowers. I had a borrower. It's funny enough that she. um, I mean, we're talking mortgage, but this is for you listeners out there that want to like you know just check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? Like people like when you sign a contract, know you're fucking signing, right? I had a borrower that started a class action lawsuit against my company. And I was like, my company I was out of business at this point. Right? Like, <laughs> like, like I was, I didn't go like down the way you did because I, I did actually do well financially. And then I lived off that for five years because I didn't make any money for five years. It was the worst like five years of my life. Right. Like to work, to wake up in the morning and go to work and cut checks and not take a paycheck for five fucking years, 1800 days. Yeah. There's a way better option. Go get a job. Right. 
but I chose to stick it out, which it worked out for me in the long run, you know, just like it would have worked out for anybody who held their, held on to their homes for that, that time frame. But I had a borrower take, she took a pick a pay loan from WAMU, flipped into a pick a pay loan from World Saving. Those are the loans that had the negative interest rates or yeah. ne- 1% interest rate and you negatively amortize. And she ends up suing me and we go to the trial and I was, and I was like, and I, and I showed my lawyer, I said, dude, she's been in five pick a pay loans. I was just the asshole that did the fifth one, you know? So this is a person, it wasn't like she went from a like super safe loan to like this like exotic loan. This is a person that had been living off their equity for 10 years. Right. You know? right. And, then, and then they didn't want to take responsibility for themselves. So I, and I feel like right now the world's coming to this, like this point where people, you know, some people do want to take responsibility for their, for their actions, but a lot of people, we live in a world of moral hazard, right? Where, where the government allows for people to not take responsibility for their actions. And yeah, there was definitely victims during that time frame. Don't get me wrong. Like there were people that got put into loans that they were like not smart enough to like realize they're being put into and there was LOs that and loan officers and mortgage companies that made money off of it but what ended up happening afterwards to your point was you were embarrassed to tell people you're in the mortgage industry because oh you you caused this problem and I go hey asshole it takes two to tango like no one can put you into a loan unless you sign on the paper dotted line yourself right yeah they maybe didn't explain it well enough. And there was probably a lot of that that went on, but you, you have a responsibility to, to know what you're signing, right? Like what, what are your thoughts? Sure. Well, no, I dude, I think you're hitting at the underpinning of a lot of our current political and social turmoil that people aren't really talking about the underlying disease. And I think personally, and if you can't tell by my gun shirt and the on the edge podcast hat, I'm pretty much a hardcore libertarian, like first amendment and second amendment absolutionist. But something that's happening is like, there's this slow erosion of the importance of contract law in America. So whether it's excusing the borrower who signed the mortgage contract, who didn't know what they were signing and that contract's no longer valid or the big push right now to cancel student loan debt. Oh, cause this poor 18 year old didn't know that a hundred thousand dollars at 4% interest was going to take 20 years to um, to pay back. Well, if they didn't know that, then shame on the educational institute. It's not the contract's fault. It's not the student lender's fault. Same thing with like we saw through the the moratorium, right? The pandemic. It was like, oh yeah, well, those contracts where renters have to pay their landlords, city of Los Angeles, you know, county of Los Angeles, state of California, the federal government, we're just going to negate those. Like renters don't have to pay their rent, you know, because we're 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 going through some tough times right now. And this idea of whether it's a government entity or kind of just the like social zeitgeist, just saying that contracts are no longer valid. You can't have a functioning society if contracts aren't valid. Like if they're not binding, then it might as well just be anarchy, which, you know, maybe I'm interested in personally, but uh, I don't think it's good. I don't think it's good for society. Like I think it's real bad for business economics. And, you know, I just, I think like this underlying tone of, well, we can decide which contracts are good contracts and bad contracts and what debts are good debts and bad debts. I think that sets a really, really bad societal precedent because then, you know, you can't, would you want to be a landlord right now in Austin, Texas? Would you want to own a restaurant in Los Angeles, California? Like what, what are the chances that you can run a profitable business and kind of grow the overall economy if you can't trust the foundation of like the contracts that this shit is written on? It's just, I think it's a real problem. Hey gang, Darius Mishaza here. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. 
So listen, I know we have a lot of CEOs, entrepreneurs, and business owners out there that listen to the show. And right now, if you're one of those folks and you're doing, let's call it a bare minimum of seven figures and above in your business, then what I'd like to do is give you an offer right now. How would you like to get your hands on the frameworks that I actually used to scale my last company, which started off as a small little seven-figure company to over $100 million in annual revenue. And I did it in less than two years, and I did it without costly growing pains, without the headaches that that you usually experience when you are scaling your business. So if you're one of those folks and you're trying to grow your company, but you're you're finding yourself stuck in that day-to-day, if you're one of the listeners and you're getting grinded, this is your respite from getting grinded on your business, you're listening to our show, and you're dealing with the breakdowns, you're dealing with inefficiencies, and you know, you've know got that firefighter suit on and all the problems lining on your desk and you're, you're not doing the work you're supposed to be doing, which is working on the business instead of in it, then what I'm about to talk to you about for the next call 60 seconds, this is precisely for you. Real quickly though, if you don't already know this about me, prior to starting The Greatness Machine, I spent 20 years of my life as a founder and CEO of real world companies. And during that time, I actually grew my companies to over $1.2 billion with the B in bootstrap revenue. In fact, uh, we scaled out my last company from 30 to 1,000 employees, and we did it in just 36 months. And we did it all by using a three-step framework that I call my scale map method. So that, of course, brings us to the purpose of this here mid-roll ad. Yes, this is what the podcast producers call these things. Recently, I created a 30-minute training. And what it does is it walks you step-by-step through all of my scale my method frameworks. And you can watch it right now for free when you go to DariusScale.com. That's my first name, Darius, scale, S-C-A-L-E.com. And what these frameworks do is they fix, they simplify, and they streamline every single aspect of your business. And they do it without the need for complicated scaling systems that are typically way too difficult and way too time consuming for a busy CEO like you and from my, like myself was to implement. So if you want a simple and you want a proven path to remove yourself from the day-to-day operations, just like I did, so that you can do what you're supposed to be doing, which is leading your company to record growth without the headaches and without the growing pains, go to DariusScale.com. That's www.DariusScale.com. Watch the short video and I'll see you guys on the inside. Now, back to the show. Regardless of your feelings on whether the government should print money or not, I agree. And I said this when this happened during COVID, right? I said, whoa, wait wait a second. So the government can just say you can't pay your mortgage? Like the government can just say that you don't have to pay rent? And I said, okay, what if it's privately owned business? So I'm a private landlord and I rented to you under the expectation that you were going to pay me so I could... I'm re- I mean, I have a whole business model built on the fact that I'm going to work my ass off to fill this place up with people who, who are contractually bound to pay me that I can then, if they don't pay me, I can leverage local law to replace them with another person that will pay me. And you're right. saying, no, 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 no. They don't have to. There's a rent moratorium and there's a mortgage moratorium. And, and for the next year, they don't have to pay shit. Yeah. I'm like, well, what happens to the underlying asset then? Oh, fuck those people? So it, like, my answer was, Government, if you want to do that, then you need to pay it for them. You're welcome to not to to pay someone. Like I don't like that. I don't love that solution either. You know, because I do think there's moral hazard there as well. But right. like at the end of the day, you're undermining capitalism if you're saying to your point that hey, contracts are valid only when we say they are. It's yeah. like, well, wait a second. That's that is to your point. That is the 
complete foundation on which we build our capitalistic and legal society. Because who's to say what contracts I want to obey and not obey? I don't like your contracts. I'm not going to obey them. I do like your contracts. I am going to obey them. Like which contracts become valid? And when I saw that happening, I was like, oh, this is fucked up. Because we're I, was, I come from a mortgage servicing background, right? So as a mortgage servicer, you will blow up if people quit paying their mortgages because the bondholder doesn't give the, the servicer a hall pass on paying the taxes, insurance, and bond payments. And right. this happened. They went to FHFA and they said, hey, 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 I can't remember the guy uh, who ran it, Mark something. But they're like, hey, dude, like you're going to blow up the entire servicing industry. Like they're all they have to make payments to the bondholders. By the way, if you have a pension, I'm going to say that you're like, for instance, I don't know. Let's say you get a pension from, oh, let's say the military. Do you know how they may pay your fucking pension payments? Because yeah. the fucking bond gets their payment and makes a, a, a payment of interest to the bondholders who the pension own. And now they're saying, oh, wait, no, the guy that's actually making the payment to them, you don't get to collect your payment anymore, but you still have to make your payment to the bondholder. So the buck stopped at the consumer and they started fucking the foundation below it. And yeah. that stuff is that's unhealthy and it's not OK. And both parties are massively guilty of this. You know, I would probably blame one more than the other. But this this hubris of like, oh, well, we've got the answer. You know, these these couple thousand people in Washington, D.C., somehow we're so smart and we're so educated. We have the right credentials and we got elected and we have all the correct initials after our name. The hubris of like being able to say, well, we've got it all figured out. You know, we'll we'll just we'll just not have people pay their mortgage. It's like, well, there's so much stuff downstream of that. You know, I thought it was hilarious that like. I knew people who are retired, million dollars in the bank, houses paid off, but because their social security plus pension plus dividends was below the, whatever the number was, $85,000 threshold, they got stimulus checks. And they were like, why do I need $1,400? I know one person who even tried to find a way to like send it back and her and her husband, they were like, we got $1,400 each several times. Had they just means tested that by either net net worth or go figure, had you have to register for the stimulus check, the government would have saved billions of dollars because there's, yeah, probably billions, at least hundreds of millions, because there's tons of people out there who didn't need it, who just got the money shipped to them because the hubris of these politicians being like, well, you know, Bill, if you make under $85,000 a year, you must be broke and you need some government money. And they're like, no, I've got a pension. I got social security. My house is paid off. I got a million dollars in the bank. Your $1,400 means nothing to me. No, you just literally printed money for no reason. I know so I'm not going to name who this person is, but I know somebody that went from a $100,000 a year boarding school in high school to a $100,000 a year private learning small liberal arts college outside of Massachusetts who was 20 years old, whose family is like stupid wealthy, and they got a fucking stimulus check because they file their own taxes. And I'm like, this is the person that goes to $100,000. They go to Wesleyan, right? It's like literally 100K a year for this kid to go to school. They got a job working at, probably as like a lifeguard for fun for the hell right, of it. And right, they, right. Just because they happen to file their own tax returns, they got a stimulus check. And I was like, dude, send that money back. Like, like so that, that is not for you. That is not for you to go fuck off with your friends. Like that is like that you are like that is not okay. That's the opposite of ask not what you can do for yourself. Ask what you can do for your country. That is the opposite of that. 
It's crazy, man. And I don't know what the tipping point is because I get the thought process, right? You see this handout over here, this subsidy you don't agree with over here and this thing being overspent on. And and then all of a sudden it's like, well, I kind of want to get mine, right? It's like, there's that human instinct to be like, I'm paying into the system. I see all this stuff I disagree with. Both, everybody does it. A lot of, or not everybody, a lot of people from both political persuasions or all political persuasions do it. And it's like, I keep trying to think to myself, like, where is the tipping point where we're going to have this collective awakening or who's the leader that's going to step up and unite things and, and have a, a change in the, you know, country's psychology. And I just don't see that person on the horizon. You know, wh- whether you were a big Bill Clinton fan or hater, or whether you're a big Reagan fan or hater, you can po- point to both of those people and be like, well, in the eight years, they somehow found a way to work with an opposition Congress and they somehow had a way of like solidifying the the American vision and moving forward, you know, blowjobs and and sexual uh, preclusions in the uh, Oval Office aside. And they did that. And I, I just I don't see anything on the horizon where there's like an awakening of the American consciousness, which which scares me. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think also you had a, a different Senate and Congress then reaching your hand across the aisle back then was may have never it's never been popular but it was expected on you know there was compromise was part of the equation and you didn't have the super partisan you know parts of the party ruling the parties right you had there was more of a moderate you know foundation at that point i I think we're just at a different time in the country and and you know if there's anything i think that anyone can agree on is that hey listen if 50 percent of the country is happy and 50 percent of the country is pissed that's not good for anybody. Yeah. Right. And, and I don't care what side you're on. Like that, that's, that's just the way I see it. Totally agree. And when you were saying that I was reminded of something and I wish I could source this article cause I read it and it's like burnt in my brain and I can't find it. Some uh, political commentator, maybe it was George will or something was talking about how in about the late eighties to early nineties, there was this change in Congress where it used to be, you got elected to Congress or the Senate, you moved yourself and your whole family to Washington, D.C. You live there. Your kids went to the same school. You ate at the same restaurants. Republicans and Democrats smoked cigars together at the same place. But somewhere in about the early 90s, this started to change where congressmen and women left their families back home, would fly in to do their congressional work, you know, Monday through Wednesday or Monday through Thursday, then fly home to be home with the family and do more fundraising, more fundraising, constant fundraising to get reelected. And that separation of having a shared experience in Washington, D.C., where, you know, whoever, Tipper Gore and Newt Gingrich would never having dinner together. And they'd be like, yeah, I disagree with you politically, but you're a good person. I know your family. Our kids go to school together. We have the same values. This political commentator in this article was tracking the division in the country from that point to where we are now, where it's like basically no politician domiciles with their entire family in Washington, D.C., except for the president and the vice president, and how this divide of like shared experience and everybody going back to their super partisan base to do fundraising every single week has just destroyed the like the social glue that used to hold those people together and have them reach across the aisle. And that to me was a really compelling argument because like if you and I disagree violently about politics and we never break bread together and be like, oh, he likes pink and I like red, but that doesn't mean we're evil. It just means like he, he values pink and I value red. But you know what? We both want to raise our kids in a, in a great America. 
you know, that disappears. All of a sudden, all I see is your ugly hot pink and all you see is my ugly bright red and we hate each other. And it's just, it's silly. Yeah. And it, well, it goes back to this simple idea that this comes down to, you know, relationship, right? And people that have relationships with each other, you know, even if they don't agree, then at least there's a mutual respect around where they're coming from, right? So because they understand each other's values, right? And then when we understand each other's values, then and then we can have empathy for where we're coming from, right? right? And right now, you know, we're in a place where there is a, well, first of all, people are living inside their homes more or less because of this whole COVID pandemic. People are on social media, which I think is really, you know, as connecting as it has been for you and for me, right. it is very, is probably the opposite for most people. Most people it is dividing and it pushes people into their own little echo chambers where they start to, you know, create really like villainize people that don't agree with them. I think I know what the answer is. I don't like that. I, I, I don't like the solution I'm landing on. Let's go for it. What, what do you think the solution is? Well, I've come to the conclusion that people generally don't take action unless the pain is so bad that they are forced to take action. Yeah. So the conclusion I came to is that the only thing that's going to probably solve this is pain. Yeah. And I don't know what that pain is or what degree of that pain is. And we, you and I have a mutual friend, Tucker Max, that just has some very strong beliefs on what that pain could be. And but right. if, you re- if you read like Changing World, World Order by Ray Dalio, or you've read Hal's book, The Fourth Turning, you know, we're at a part in this, these 80 year, 100 year cycles where, you know, economics has driven, you know, disparate, you know, camps to form. And you have a lot of the, the rich are getting richer than ever before. The middle class is being dissolved. And you have uh, an economic underpinning that is not healthy for our nation. And around this part of the cycle, there's a lot of, you know, the, again, this is if you're looking at it historically, there's a lot of disagreement, a lot of division, and a lot of volatility politically, culturally, socially. And so, you know, I think that to your point earlier, as you don't see on the horizon a great leader, I do think leadership is the answer. That's the anecdote to this is really, really strong leadership. And my hopes are that that comes from somewhere. I don't see it either at this point, but you know, it can come out of nowhere. You know, yeah. leadership, is, leadership is not concrete. It's something that can come from, from, from out of nowhere if you get the right person and yeah. the right mindset and they can build a following. But I, I, unfortunately, I think it's going to be one of two camps. One is we're going to have this great leader that appears that can unite everybody, but I think it's going to come through pain. I think there's going to be some event that is a, a straw that breaks the camel's back and out of that will be born a, a, it'll force change to happen that needs to happen that we're not willing to do right now unfortunately yeah. you know what what it sounds like to me that you're describing and i i can always go back to a movie reference because i'm a movie nutbag and this was one of my favorite movies from my childhood is west side story like west side story is this growing tension of like two groups of generally good people with some hoodlum tendencies who are like escalating, escalating, escalating. And at the end of the movie, it's like, oh, shit got real and somebody got dead. And um, I really feel that's where we're at. What, you know, what, whether it's the, the protest in Portland or the riot at the Capitol, whatever, it's like there's this low level tension that's building and sometimes somebody gets dead, but it, it does feel like there's going to have to be some massive pain in the country's psyche to get better. And the thing that's hard for me, and I don't know if you're experiencing the same thing, it's almost like, uh, you know, uh, was the beginning of War and Peace. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's like 
my wife and I are trying to give back because we have a lot of friends and family that are in the, you know, lower socioeconomic tier who have had a lot of pain the last year. But, you know, I can tell you kind of selfishly and embarrassingly, the last two years for our family has been like the best ever, you know, great years in the mortgage business financially, the assets that we own are through the roof because if you have assets, you're crushing it right now. Housing, gold, stock market, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, we've kind of found our tribe of jujitsu people that said, screw it at the very beginning. We're going to work out together no matter what and stay healthy. So it's like, I've lost weight. You know, wealth is up. Business is going well. More quality time working from home with my family than ever before. So I feel like for us, it's the best of times, but I don't have to look that far you know, from friends or family be like, Oh, there's some real struggle out there. And we, and we try to do what we can and, and give back in the ways that we feel that's appropriate. But it's a really weird time where you see like a huge cross section of people struggling just to make ends meet. And then you're like, Oh, we, we created more millionaires, billionaires, and more, you know, paper money in the stock market in the last two years than ever in the history of America. That feels kind of weird. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a really precarious time. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, you know, it's funny. I was like, I don't know if we're going to talk politics. And fucking here we are, man. Like, God, here we are. You're like, early in the, you're like, yeah, if any of my real estate people hear me talking, it's like they're going to pull, they're going to pull the plug. It's like, I don't know, man. I have a tough time. You know, I don't like to talk politics because it's polarizing. Right. right. But you and I are, it's funny. We took this uh, Pew uh, assessment, right. And you were like the disgruntled, what was yours? Just like the dispassionate or uh, that dispassionate observer or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was like, like there is no home for Scott Groves. And mine was like the, like barely right wing. <laughs> right, 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 right. You're a liberal, you're a liberal right winger. It was like, yeah, you, you and I are politically homeless, like so many other people. And, you know, may, maybe that pain that we've been talking about the last 10 minutes, which what a downer of an episode, by the way. Sorry to anybody watching. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, maybe that pain will create a legitimate third party or something that we can't even foresee on the horizon that'll just make the country so much better. Because I'm not like a total naysayer. I'm not like, oh, China's going to take us over. China's got all kinds of their own political problems and whatnot. I think we're still living in an exceptional country. Um, that's an amazing place to live with a ton of opportunity. You just got to go out and find a way to get it. You know, just a, a little worried, but so, so so much of this is just like you can control your own fate, right? You can control your friend circle. You can control what you take in on Facebook. You can control how much you lead generate and make money and grow your business. Like there is still a lot of self-control that we have over our own direction. We just got to turn off social media once in a while and not get sucked into the echo chambers in the vacuum. Yeah. So, so obviously, you know, you have business life and you have the family life but let's talk let's go move over into this project that you've had for a while that with you know on the edge podcast so i know that that's a big thing for you like i think the listeners might be interested in learning more about it like like how did that come to be how did you guys start the podcast yeah so funny story i I smoke a lot of cigars to my wife's chagrin she doesn't really like it it's the one habit i have that she wishes i would get rid of Uh, i smoke a lot of cigars and you know an average large long somewhat expensive cigar would take about two hours to smoke. So I found myself at these cigar lounges and kind of like that TV show Cheers, you can walk into any cigar lounge in America and find pretty much the same cast of characters. It's just, it's hilarious how like just uniformed it is. I've smoked cigars all over the country and it's like any cigar lounge, it's basically the same cast of characters. So uh, this one night I'm talking to this guy who I I can't remember his name, but uh, he did something like, $1,000 
ran global technology for some like Fortune 100 company. A guy that I would never, ever, ever have access to unless we happened to be at the same lounge smoking cigars. And we had like this two-hour conversation on politics and business and how Disney is putting RFID chips in the bracelet so that they can better control flow of personnel so that they can better get more people on rides and maximize profit. It was just this amazing business conversation that led to politics. That led to a funny story about him meeting uh, Justice Scalia. And it was just like, we got done with the conversation. And I'm like, Jesus, why was that conversation not recorded for other people to hear? Or as like a great learning tool for my 19-year-old son, which is a whole different story. I didn't even know he existed until he was 15. We're playing a lot of catch up. He's an awesome kid. And I'm like, I'm having so many awesome two-hour long-form conversations. And would I love to be Joe Rogan one day? Yeah, that'd be awesome. But there's only one Joe Rogan. But I'm like, I'm just coming across super cool people who I'm having a cigar with. Why not put on some headphones and hit record and go from there? So that turned into On The Edge podcast. Inevitably, because of the mortgage business, I end up having a lot of interesting conversations with people about you know the way they make their money and their opinion on finances and their opinion about the economy going forward. And it's not appropriate for me to talk about those conversations for fiduciary responsibilities due to the fact that I'm doing their home loan. But if I can get them to come on the podcast and talk about it, well, now it's free game and it's out there in the in the public uh, atmosphere. So that kind of started the project um, during during the pandemic. My buddy, uh, Chris, who's like a great marketing guy, he kind of needed a side gig. So I'm like, this is kind of my version of charity to Chris to keep the podcast going so he can stay in work and edit it. And it's weird. Like sometimes our, our content will get four views and I'll feel like a loser. And sometimes it'll get a couple thousand views. And I can't believe that many people wanted to hear us talk. So uh, yeah, it's just a work in progress. And maybe one day I'll write a book that takes off and then people will have a catalog of 200 back episodes to go listen to on my thought process and my own kind of rants. And, you know, sometimes it's just talking through me thinking about my own political and social and economic beliefs, which are constantly a work in progress. So that's it, man. Some, some people love it. Some people hate it. And, uh, it just, it's, it's out there for people to digest and see what they're interested in. Have you ever, um, you know, yeah, I kind of feel the same way with this show. I mean, this show is just about people kind of living their best lives to create something cool. And I mean, and your, your story is unique, right? Like, most people in the mortgage business don't have a podcast and write a book and do coaching and are <laughs> as active as you are, right? Like, like you're actually more of a anomaly for the greatness machine than most people. Other people, like, yeah, like my last episode I did was uh, my friend Chris Pronger, who's the number one of the top. He's an NHL Hall of Famer, right? That's more like when you think of like a typical greatness story. That's like, like how the fuck do you become top 100 NHL? player of all time right you're born with some god-given gifts and you go and get after it right but in his story we just talked about hockey the whole time you know i think again when you when you're meeting folks like scott where it's like yeah you're in the mortgage space but that's probably the least interesting part of your life you right. know like like i mean although the mortgage space is definitely like an interesting space it's more like there's more access to that a lot of people can get into the mortgage space yeah so starting a podcast and writing a book it's like hey listen i've done both those they're both the pain in the ass to get off the ground right, right? and then to right. keep them off the ground is even harder you know i mean anyone can start a podcast and then not have not do anything with it and not keep it going um but for you like what when you look at like 
the podcast, I love the story that the fact that the reason you've done it is it was like a way to capture kind of these intimate conversations you're having in the cigar bar. You know, when you look at the future of on the edge podcast or what you would like to do with it, if you could have it your way, what would, what would you do? You know, I'd like to talk to more and more educated, interesting people that have a strong view on politics or the econ or economics. Like he's unfortunately in the twilight of his life, but somebody like Thomas Sal who wrote amazing books on economics. I'd love to talk to somebody at that level and just like ask them basic economic questions and how that, you know, kind of interplays with like all the craziness we, we, we see now, you know, I, I think your book actually helped me because I actually read your book. Unlike most people that um, go on shows, I've read your book cover to cover. One of the things that your book helped me solidify in my mind that I had kind of figured out over like five years is that my number one core value is variety. You know, I, I thought growing up and then even in my 20s, I wanted to be the NHL hockey player who like picked one thing and I was the best at it. And that was my sole focus of life. And then in my 30s, I started realizing that like, no, there's something else there. And I, at the time, I wasn't calling it a core value. I didn't even know the core value was variety. But, you know, the core value is variety. And to be honest, it used to show up in other ways, like dating and things like that. Now I'm happily married and my wife's amazing, so I can't change around the variety of people that I date. So I've got to do it with uh, businesses and opportunities because your book helped me solidify that like, my core value is variety. So if the podcast could become something where like I'm getting a hit of variety every time we film an episode and like learning something new and expanding my mind, to me, that's like a huge win. Um, yeah. And hopefully there's enough people that also their core value is variety. Yeah, no, I love that. And, and that is, that is, I could totally see that with you. If you're to, you know, look out 10 years in the future right now, you're, you're on the verge of 43 going from 43 to 53 what would you like to tell like the 53 year old version of, of Scott Groves to make sure that he does it right over the next 10 years? I would tell myself to stay the course on keeping expenses low and really diving in the next 10 years of diverting as much money as possible to passive income. Because I, I want to get to the point actually before 53, I want to get to the point at like 50 where, you know, my oldest son will be 26, 27, hopefully getting married, maybe having kids. My, um, you know, five and three year old will be right in that age where I'll want to coach high school wrestling or I want to be able to pick them up at the end of the day and like just do cool stuff because time is going to be limited with them before they leave for college. Like, you know, in the next couple of years, I really want to make sure all of the effort that went into focused on like how to make money really goes into focusing on how to preserve it and have money make money because passive income, like if I get to the point where the girls that run the mortgage team could get 90% of the revenue and do 90% of the work. And I could just do like podcasts, jujitsu, smoke cigars, spend quality time with my kids in the next, you know, five to seven years where that's like the full-time plan. I'll consider my life a success. Um, and that's, yeah, that's kind of what I'm looking for, man. Yeah. You know, Justin Donald. There you yeah, go. Yeah. I picked his, I've picked his brain a lot. Yeah. Like, uh, just go hang out with Justin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I got exposed to him. Uh, I got exposed to him through front row dads, which was amazing kind of just stroke of genius. And we've made a couple investments with, uh, with his people that I'm pretty excited about. So yeah, it's just like, you know, I had, I had a great conversation with a friend of mine, Adam stock, who's a financial planner also from front row dads. And you know, it's just a spreadsheet. He's like, here's the amount of money you got to peel off every three to four months to get to this point by your 50 by the time you're 50 and I'm going to hold you accountable to not allowing expenses to go up as more passive income is coming through. Cause you can get to this number 
pretty quickly. And, you know, I, I would never want to be retired. Like I would love to do just more podcasts, maybe mentor more people in the mortgage space. But uh, yeah, that's the real goal. I don't want to be, I don't want to be absentee in my, in my children's teenage years, just because they're older and they're on an iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. You got to make sure they don't get the iPhones till they're 13 or 14. Yeah. Or like 23, maybe. Or 50. Yeah. 50. <laughs> yeah. So, Jitter, so bugs only. <laughs> so look, man, um, we're coming towards the end of the show, but where, you know, where can people connect with you and find you? Obviously there's all sorts of things that can get you on the podcast for folks that want to get coached. And, and, and I guess we didn't even talk much about the coaching, but maybe, maybe spend a few minutes on the coaching and then we'll go to the we'll oh, coaching is coaching, man. It's like, most adults don't need to learn new things. They just need to be reminded of the things they already know. I've got a sign here right above my desk that says, seek not what's new, but rather what's true. And I stole that from our mutual friend, John Vroman, because it's it's true, man. Like most coaching problems are just a consistent reminder and accountability of the stuff you already know you need to be doing. Look, if you're if you own a business, you're fully commissioned or you sell a product, spoiler alert, Lead generation probably has to be part of your daily activities, right? And right. so we're constantly just teaching that and coaching that. And yeah, I, Facebook's probably the easiest thing. I'm Scott Groves, not the guy who's in Australia who wants to be Tony Robbins and is a you know a mindset motivational coach. It makes me so mad because he owns everything scottgroves.com. Oh, and he has like seven followers. It makes me so bitter. So find Scott Groves, the one that's in Los Angeles and Las Vegas. We're back and forth between the two cities a lot. And uh, yeah, that's the easiest way to reach out to me. I, whatever. I can help with mortgages. I'm an intellectual philanthropist. Anybody wants to talk about mortgages, lead generation, marketing, coaching, podcasting, I don't care. I'll give anybody any amount of information for free. So so wait, so what's the website that's best to find you at? I don't know. Just just email me, Scott at Scott Groves team. There's too much stuff out there. Scott at Scott Groves team and Scott Groves on Facebook. I don't have a branded website because that dude in Australia owns fucking everything. fuck that guy. Yeah, <laughs> as yeah. I tell John Roman's like, "What's your favorite saying?" I'm like, "Fuck that guy." Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fuck you, Scott Groves in Australia. You know, like the, the, you can't you can't steal my boy's thunder. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I've emailed him a bunch of times trying to buy his handle and buy his website, and he never responds. So yeah. I'm sure. I, he's I, a- I, hey, uh, hey, in his defense, I'd tell you to fuck off, and I would. Yeah, say, of course, of course. No I'd be like, yeah, off. right. I'm like, change your name, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a good one. Anastasia Groves. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> well, man, uh, look, you guys, uh, Scott at scottgrovesteam.com. Is that right? Yep. Scott at scottgrovesteam.com. Pretty easy. You guys check out Scott Groves there. You can check, check him out on the On the Edge podcast where you can hear him banter like over cigars and politics and the changing world order. Yeah. And, um, and even more importantly than that, lead generate the book. We got to bring you in for the um, Scale Map Method Bootcamp to talk about lead gen. I love it, man. I'm super passionate about it. And again, it's it's really just habits. You know, that doesn't matter what your thing is: organic, paid, phone calls, Facebook. Like, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, it just it has to become a daily process. Well, you guys, you heard it here. My man Scott Groves, changing the world, being the polymath that he is. I'm so so pumped to get to know you over the last 24 months. And I'm super pumped for the next 24 months of us getting to change the world together, my friend. Thanks, man. I'll be in Austin soon, maybe looking at a house out there in Dripping Springs where all the cool kids are moving. So uh, I'll let you know when I'm in town. I can't wait for it. Scott, thank you so much, brother. So much gratitude having you on the show. Everyone, we'll talk to you guys soon. Peace out. We love you. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen. 
If you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. Appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.